0: We've been talking roughly the last 15, 18 months about seeing ourselves as owners of Elon Chapel and not simply consumers of programs and the services that the church offers. It's, it's, this morning I want to look more closely at what this actually means. It's, it's not so much that the congregation owns the building, though, in fact, we do, I guess. But uh, there's bad news attached to that idea. That, that means that we have to fix this roof, which tends to leak every spring, whether we want it or not. And, and uh, when the steps out in front, uh, as you see there, whoopsie, does make it work. This is a confusing little instrument. Um, I'll just leave it aside. Um, one little cracked step led to a $20,000 bill because when that cracked step was removed, we discovered that the whole foundation under the front steps was eroded and unsafe. So our job as the owners is to pay the bills to fix the steps. But what we really want each one of us to own is our church's mission. That's that's our desire. Uh, Precisely the, the responsibility for our church's mission is what we want you to own. We want each person to be thinking about Uh, or thinking that the mission of Elam Chapel is my mission. Not somebody else's mission, but the mission of Elam Chapel is my mission. That's what we want every member and adherent to be thinking. Now, what is that mission? Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28, and we're going to focus on verse 19. Because here we find the mission of the church spelled out in very clear terms by Jesus shortly before his ascension and his exaltation in heaven, we call this statement the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our mission as a church and as individuals is to make disciples. At the bottom line, this is the business of Elam Chapel. To make disciples, I came across this concept recently about making a business plan so simple that it would fit on the back of a napkin, or as we say in the true north, a serviette. And, and the idea is just make your business plan simple. So this is the church's business plan on a serviette. We are to be disciples on a mission of making disciples. In this plan, you see one disciple makes disciples. Two disciples, one disciple's barely on the screen, and then that disciple makes two more disciples, and then two more are made, and the church, through this process of discipling, multiplies. The business plan is simple enough to fit on a serviette. Our mission is not to make disciples of Elam Chapel. Our focus is always on Jesus, our Lord, Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus who are trying to help other people become disciples of Jesus Christ. As owners of the mission, our ambition should be to live as disciples who make disciples. Now, if we're going to effectively implement our business plan, we need to find biblical answers to two questions. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What is a disciple? And how do we make disciples? The what and the how. What is our goal? Making disciples. How do we reach that goal? Well, what is a disciple? Now, now, what's going on in this picture? There's two, two men sitting at a table, there's a Bible in between them. One person has a pen in his hand and he's, and he's pointing to something in the Bible, the other person is listening. The word disciple refers to a pupil or a learner. In other words, in the language at that time, a disciple would be a person who is being taught. So you might look at this picture and say, well, this is discipleship. One person learning from another about Jesus. Well, this is a part of discipleship, but it's not nearly the whole of discipleship at all. In the New Testament, the word disciple means much more than that. So what is a disciple? The word disciple is used in the gospel in two ways. First, it designates particular people. We immediately think of the 12 disciples, those 12 men whom Jesus chose to be close to him, to learn from him about the kingdom of God, and to serve the kingdom of God. However, that word is not limited to these 12 men. Some of his disciples were women. Who traveled with the twelve and paid the bills As we see in Luke chapter 8 Where it says also some women Who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases Mary called Magdalene From whom seven demons had come out Johanna the wife of Cusa the, The manager of Herod's household Susanna and many others These women were helping to support them Out of their own means In Luke 10 There's a mention of 72 disciples That Jesus sent out on a mission trip In Matthew chapter 5, where we find Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount to what was presumably a very large crowd of people, Matthew says Jesus sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he taught them, suggesting that there were hundreds and hundreds of disciples within that crowd. So in the word, in the Gospels, the word disciple was used of those who were the followers of Jesus, people who believed in him, And followed him. They had attached themselves to Jesus in some level of commitment and were busy following him. So, as we said, Jesus had hundreds and hundreds of disciples. But not everyone continued to be a disciple. In John chapter 6, there's a story where Jesus is teaching, and at one point in his talk, he says to his followers, his disciples, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. That was heretical in Jewish years. They could not drink blood in any form. It had to be properly drained from an animal before it was butchered. And some of those disciples in that crowd took great offense at this. They were very disturbed. So we read in verse 66 of John 6, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So we see in the Gospels that a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who starts finishes well. But a disciple is defined as one who follows Jesus. So this is a better New Testament picture of discipleship. Jesus and people following him. That is a true picture of what the New Testament means by disciples, people who follow Jesus. It's how the word is used in the Gospels. Now in the book of Acts, it's used with a slightly different feel, but it's still the same idea. Because throughout Acts, you will find the Greek word disciple with some frequency, 31 times Actually. But in our versions, in almost in our English versions, it almost never shows up as disciple. It shows up as either believer or Christian, because when Acts was written by Luke, the word disciple for Christians meant either a believer in Jesus or a Christian. We find that just here's two examples: um, the Greek-speaking believers, which is the word disciple, complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers or disciples saying that their widows were being discriminated against. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, disciples. And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 14, then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the disciples, though we translated as believers, were first called Christians. So we conclude that both in the Gospels and Acts, that a disciple is simply a person who has chosen to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to listen to him, to obey him, to be what he wants them to be. Now, some only follow for a short time. They fall away. Uh, it's sad. A person called me this week. On, we actually called the church a couple of weeks ago, and I called him back, and, and then he called me back, and we finally talked this week, and he wanted to know about our church. But you know what his big question was? It was a personal question, a haunting question. What about my friends who used to follow Jesus and don't anymore? What happens to them? And we talked about that. It's a hard question. Well, that's the first question. What is a disciple? What is the second question? How do we make disciples? We need to take a closer look at the Great Commission this morning. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and earth. This is Matthew 28, starting with verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to notice the verbs in the actual commandment. It's the verbs that move the action along. There there are four verbs in this passage. How do we make disciples? There's four verbs. One is an active verb with the force of an imperative. It's a command. It's Jesus telling us what to do. And that word is make disciples. That's the one imperative in these three verses. The one command. It's only one word in Greek. And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what that means, but we know that when Jesus used the word, it meant make somebody a learner. The other three verbs are participles. Grammar matters, doesn't it? Some of you that used to be school teachers believe that intensely. Grammar matters. These are participles, they're descriptive. They're not commands, they're descriptive words. There are three of them going, baptizing, Teaching. One imperative verb, three participles that are descriptive. Now, the f- first participle is in a passive voice, which uh, it, it is fairly unique in structure to Greek, but, but we use it still in English as well. So it would be best translated as having gone, or once you were gone, or after you have gone then do these things. Now, the problem with most of our translations is that we've made the participle sound like an imperative. So we take the first participle in the sentence and we make it the imperative. And we say, go! It's not quite what Jesus said. We make it sound like the disciple maker is, is going. That's not what Jesus said. It also suggests this word go, the way we've used it, to be like a missionary term, like go to another country and proclaim the gospel. Go to another culture, proclaim the gospel. That's not what Jesus suggests here. Uh, You have to watch the Simpson episodes to understand how Simpson steals Flanders Oral Roberts' degree and becomes a missionary. Um, But that's another story. What does this mean? Well, let's think about it. What does it mean, having gone? Most of us are on the go these days. We're always going somewhere, and more often than not, we're in a hurry. And if you're like me, you get angry at the drivers in front of you who aren't in a hurry. That's the world we live in. Well, where are we going? We're going to work, we're going to school, we're going to a coffee shop, we're going to the grocery store, we're going to a community club, we're going to a gym, we're going to a volunteer activity, we're going to a party. We're always going somewhere. Having gone suggests that wherever we are, work, school, coffee shop, community club, gym, party, wherever we are we should be alert for opportunities to make disciples for gently pointing other people towards Jesus. During the 12 years I was with the Navigators here, I, I, I was privileged to meet some really interesting people. One person I met was from New Zealand, great big giant of a man, a rugby player, and, and he now lives in the States, and he says, I go to every party I can go to, especially the neighborhood parties. I don't miss a neighborhood party. Why? Because for him, that was an opportunity to live the Great Commission, well, what do you do, go and preach? He said, no, I never preach. I said, I only answer questions. First question is usually, what do you do? Well, I work for a not-for-profit. If that's the end of the conversation, it's over. If they say, what kind of not-for-profit? They'll say, it's a religious not-for-profit. Well, what do you do? Well, I help tell people about Jesus. Do you want to know more about that? If they say no, He's done. He just answers questions. It's an opportunity to point people towards following Jesus. So the first participle defines where the where and when of making disciples, and it's just simply anywhere, anytime. Any place you've gone is a time and place that's an opportunity to make disciples. The next two participles help us see what we should do when people respond Positively. Our invitation. First, we baptize these new disciples. This is a bit like an initiation rite. We are having a public initiation into the family of God, a public initiation into discipleship. This is why baptism should be a public event. It's a public declaration. It's, It's a way of saying in public, Jesus is Lord both over the universe and over my life, and I am going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. Now, in the early days of the church, that was a very costly act. If you were Jewish and you were baptized, you were probably kicked out of your family, certainly kicked out of the synagogue, and likely would lose your job. Things are worse today. There are many places in this world Where if you are publicly baptized As a follower of Jesus You will lose your job You will lose your family And you might well lose your life It's a costly act of initiation It's one in which the person says I have counted the cost And I choose to follow Jesus The next thing we do is teach uh, Again, discipleship is following Jesus Teaching Is a way to help people follow Jesus It's a tool that we use to help one another follow Jesus Together we get into the word And we reacquaint ourselves with what Jesus is teaching us Through his word We need robust, solid teaching To help us be Christ's disciples in the 21st century Now you notice this picture is not A guy like me standing at a thing like this Talking to people like you this is some people sitting around a table with some Bibles. They're teaching each other. And that's the kind of robust teaching that we need in our church today. People teaching one another to be disciples and how to make disciples. Now, here's something I just discovered this last week. I didn't know this before. This is, I hope you're as interested in this as I was. I took a concordance, and I looked up the word disciple. And I counted the number of times the word, either the noun or the verb, Okay, there's only four times it shows up as a verb in the New Testament. I count up the number of times the noun and the verb show up in, in the New Testament. Here are the numbers. Matthew, 73 times. Mark, 44 times. Luke, 38 times. John, 78 times. He beats Matthew out. The Gospels, 233 times. The rest of the New Testament, zero. Paul's epistles, Zero. And that really hit me. I said, what's going on here? What, what's, what's with Paul? Is, is, is he ignoring the Great Commission? Is it not important to him? Is it not relevant to him? Did he think it was only for Jews? What, what's going on here? And I finally thought, no, neither of those are true. Paul does not ignore the Great Commission. Uh, it's not that it's unimportant to him. His passion was for people having a radical change of their lives through following Jesus. His passion was to help people be followers of Jesus, to help people believe in Jesus. His his life was spent bringing the good news to people. He merely uses different language. So I thought, why would he use different language? Well, Jesus was speaking to Jewish people in what was essentially an agrarian culture. So he used metaphors like farming, like fishing. Farmer goes out and spreads the the seed in the field. He talked about harvest, uh, talked about sending laborers into the harvest. It was all very agrarian. To whom was Paul writing his epistles? Gentile urbanites, people who lived in big cities, the major cities of the Roman Empire, Corinth, Rome, uh, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Major cities, people who were urbanites So he uses a different kind of language As he's talking to them But he's still talking to them about the Great Commission Now what I want to do In the last few minutes I've got left this morning Is to look at our epistle reading for today From 1 Thessalonians To see how Paul is speaking to these Gentiles In an urban setting Because that's us We're basically Gentiles in an urban culture So what does Paul have to say to them? 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're looking. There are three important principles for disciple making here. Three. One is from Paul's own instruction, and two from his own example. By the way, Paul wasn't shy about asking people to mimic him. He says, Be imitators of me. The, the literal Greek word is mimic. He said, Mimic my behavior. So there's one instruction and there's two behaviors that he wants the church to mimic. So there are three principles here. The first principle is the importance of a good reputation. Here's some good advice from Warren Buffett. It's not how to make money. This is better advice than how to make money from Warren Buffett. He says it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. Our reputation as Christians is vital to our ability to make disciples. Working with Christian students at the U of M for 12 years, I kept saying to these young Christians, don't forget that other students are looking at you. If they know you're a Christian, they're looking at you. They're watching you. In verse 12, Paul looks back on his time with the Christians in Thessalonica, and he says, we pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for He called you to share in His kingdom and glory. This should sound very familiar to us, because we saw it a couple of weeks ago in Philippians, where he says, "Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our reputation should reflect the gospel. Our lives should reflect the gospel. God has accepted us and forgiven us. We should be accepting and forgiving. We need a reputation as accepting, forgiving people. God is constantly merciful toward us. We need to have a reputation of being merciful. God is daily kind to us, protecting us, guarding us, preserving us. We need a reputation of kindly, considerate behavior. There was a student I knew well. I'll call her Megan because that was her name. And, and one day, a student said to Megan, you're a Christian, right? And she said, yes. Uh, do you pray? Oh, y- y- I do. Would you pray for my dog? My dog is sick. Now, you think that's funny, Rose. Catch this. Megan hates dogs. <laughs> they could all die and should be happy. Now, I'm not making this up. This is... So, what did Nathan say? Yeah, I would be glad to pray for your dog. And she did. Next time, she said, How's your dog? My dog's doing better. I'll keep praying. They had several more conversations, not about the dog, but about faith. Now, I have no idea whether or not that second young person ever became a follower of Christ. But I know they got a very lovely invitation to become a follower of Christ. Because Megan had a reputation as a Christian who looked like a good, decent person. And this person says, would you pray? Reputations are very important. Now let's move to Paul's example that he set from his own life. He He shows us in his life that making disciples involves serious close relationships, the building of close relationships. In his letter, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the process by which they became followers of Christ, and it takes us back to chapter 1. Follow what he says here. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Now, pay careful attention to what he says next. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and the Lord. What I'm calling this is is the importance of incarnational living. And to me, this is is, is an important concept. if, If this is the only thing you grab this morning, grab this one. The importance of incarnational living. Now, why do we call this incarnational living? Where Paul says, We lived among you for your sake. It's very simple, because this is the example set for us by Jesus. When John the Apostle was creating for us a way of understanding the incarnation, he said, so the word became human and made his home among us. Jesus made his home among us. Now, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, we lived among you for your sake. Now, our first thoughts about the incarnation focus on Jesus wrapped in a blanket and and a feed trough in a stable but the incarnation is just as much the story of Jesus in conversation with priests in the temple it's about Jesus living at home with his parents in obedience to them it's about Jesus living with eating with sleeping with, walking with twelve disciples that is Jesus' incarnation and Paul was simply following the example set by Jesus. He was living incarnationally. He was living in relationship with non-believers because he wanted to help lead them towards knowing and following Jesus. He became close to these people so that they could mimic him and follow his example. It's, if this is a form of teaching, it's a form of apprenticeship where Paul is coming into their lives and living with them so that they can follow, not him. They don't want them to follow him. He wants them to mimic him, maybe, in following Jesus. It's Jesus we follow. He says also in the verses we read this morning, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, listen, Not only God's good news, but our own lives as well. We shared our lives with you. Incarnational living is vital to making disciples, getting close enough to people that they can see the way we follow Jesus. Now, by the way, most of us, especially at church, are inclined to want to put forward our best foot. We want you to look at us as being saints. That's not good disciple making. You need to let people see you at your worst. Because you have days when you're at your worst. But then what do they need to see when you're at your worst? They need to see you repenting, asking for forgiveness, receiving the grace of God, receiving the courage to make things right, receiving the courage from God to move ahead. People need to see us living our lives of faithfulness to God both in the good and sometimes the not so good. Now let me close with one other principle, and that is with a word about the importance of our work or our job. Listen to what Paul says. We love you so much that we share with you not only God's good news, but our lives as well. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Day and night we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. Now we know from the book of Acts and from the letter to the Corinthians that Paul was a tent maker by vocation. So it appears that while he was in Thessalonica, he made tents. And I want to suggest to you that there were actually two reasons for Paul doing this. First reason is that he didn't want anybody to accuse him of being out for the money. That's always a danger. There are some people representing Christ on television today who have made themselves subject to that accusation by some of their choices. Paul was not about to do that. I'm doing this out of love, not for money. But I think there's another reason that's even more important. For Paul, making tents was an opportunity to make disciples. His work was an opportunity to help other people follow Jesus. All day long, Paul was running a business. Five days a week, maybe six days a week, he was running the tent business. He was purchasing supplies, purchasing leather, purchasing twine, whatever else he needed to make tents. He was probably working from a rented facility. Maybe he had a landlord he had to get along with. He was meeting customers during the day. Hi, how are you? What kind of tent do you want? How big do you want it? What are you going to use this tent for? And all the time, Paul is probably dropping in little invitations to hear about Jesus because that's how Paul did his business. We really, if we work well Don't even have to drop in the invitation If we are working like Christians We're going to be different from a lot of other people And then people will start asking us questions I've told you about my friend who sells life insurance And one day the office coffee potter guy says How come your marriage is different? And he said, I didn't know it was Oh, your marriage is different And he said, well, to answer that question I've got to tell you about Jesus Do you want to hear about that? the man said, yes, I do. And within a year, that man had become a follower of Christ. Our workplace gives us an opportunity to talk about Jesus. We, we want to own this mission of making disciples. We want it to be our mission. To do that, we need to live lives with a good reputation, worthy of the gospel. We need to be with people who aren't believers. We need to have relationships with people who aren't believers. And we need to see our place of work as a chance to make disciples. Maybe this morning you'll focus on one of those and say, Lord, help me with this. Help me to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Lord, help me to make friends with some non-Christians or to further develop some friendships that I have with my neighbors Lord, help me to behave as a Christian at work in such a godly way that people will ask me why I'm different. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your commandment that we make disciples. We want to be disciples, we want to make disciples. We ask you for your help. We ask this for your glory. For you are the Savior who died for us. We ask it because this good news is the best good news in the whole world. Please help us. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.